Very few people are more plugged into the world of AI than Rob May, the CEO of Tala, which is an automation platform designed to completely change the way customer support is done. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Rob and Ian take a deep dive into everything currently going on in the AI industry, what should worry people, and what they should be excited about. Plus, if you're interested in learning more about the industry, Rob lists all of the resources he uses to stay up to date, and he gives some tips to executives who are looking to bring AI into their own organizations. This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other line across the country, Rob, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we are too. So in addition to the many startups you've been founding and co-founding in your career, you have talked at length and written about AI. So we're going to get into all things AI in this episode. But first, how did you get started in technology? So I was an um, electrical engineering major. I went to the University of Kentucky, uh, which was an awesome school because uh, they won two national basketball titles when I was there in 96 and 98. So, and then I left and uh, became a hardware designer. Uh, for those of you who are really technical, uh, what I did was FPGA design. And um, I did that for the military down in Florida uh, for some defense contractors. It was pretty exciting work, actually. And while I was down there, I started a master's degree in computer science with a focus on AI. So this was 2003, 2004, 2005. And I quit about halfway through because the AI at that time was like symbolic logic processing in Lisp. And so I got really into a lot of the concepts, but seemed to have little practical application. Uh, and I'm more an applied uh, kind, of, kind of person. I'm not a, you know, like I'm not a researcher. Uh, I don't like that kind of work. And so uh, I just didn't see any use for this. So I, I followed the field, but I quit um, the program and, uh, you know, uh, went into sales engineering and general management and stayed in technology and um, worked for a couple of startups, started my own company uh, in 2009, had a really nice exit in 2014 and um, was looking around at what to do next and realized that it was finally time to do something AI related. And so you know, I started an AI company, I started a newsletter about AI, and I started angel investing in AI. So I decided to go really, really deep uh, on that topic. You know, they say that there's no such thing as bad ideas, just bad timing. Um, did you kind of feel like the world wasn't really ready for AI to be commercialized? Like, what, what was the kind of reasoning there? Well, there were some new ideas that were coming out at the time. And, um, it's it, it, that was the beginning of the time people were really realizing that like the symbolic logic approach of hey let's you know let's define everything that's in a system and and sort of you know work on the system using you know predicate logic or something like that like it, it just wasn't going to work and um, there were some you know I was reading about some of the research that was coming out of MIT so this was about the time um, you know Rodney Brooks came up with this new approach for robot walking architectures called um, a subsumption architecture. And what he did was he said, well, instead of controlling all the legs and trying to make them work together to work, what if you just let each leg operate independently 
and give it just a couple simple rules to follow and voila, your robot starts walking much more easily. Those kinds of like decentralized emergent property approaches were very new, but nobody in academia was really talking about them yet very much. Um, obviously Rodney Brooks was, but, uh, and so it just, you know, no, nothing was working in production level systems. There really wasn't anything that was impressive. Uh, and even building it felt tedious and incomplete. And so I just thought, man, this is not, this is just not where it should be. This is not a place you want to, you want to invest the next decade of your career. That's so interesting to be able to see that, you know, the future's right around the corner, but you don't want to take the leap yet. Um, flash forward to Tala, where you are leveraging AI automation and creating a platform. And I think that we kind of know conceptually as technology leaders that much more needs to be automated, much more productivity needs to happen from your team. 90% of support answers can be automated, you know, 10x faster ticket response times, things like that. Why were you so excited to build Tala? Well, the genesis for Tala came when I was reading um, some papers on machine learning approaches to natural language processing um, in, in early 2015 after I'd sold my company and was trying to think about what to do next. And I realized that there's a lot of unstructured text in the world and it's about to become computable. And in parallel, I had seen the rise of um, hip chat and then Slack and conversational communication uh, within the organization. Uh, and there was a parallel rise in sort of customer support with people moving away from the phone and moving towards email and um, chat and other forms of text. And so we, you know, we started with the approach of like, hey, we should automate something here that's natural language processing related. Um, and so we started actually with um, HR support benefits types of questions. And um, what we learned from that was actually that it, you, you had a usage problem in the organization. And the usage problem was that, let's say you're a, you're a finance director at a big company and they launch a benefits chatbot for you. I mean, if you go into the company, if we went in there as Tala and we said, hey, we can do this thing, the, the HR people would go, oh my gosh, that's great. Like these people ask the same benefits questions all the time. The information's right here. Why can't they look it up? If the chatbot can just deliver it to them, that would be great. So they love it. It's a legitimate problem. The reason it wasn't a good business, uh, at least now, is that if you're that director of finance and you have a question, I mean, what do you have? Two benefits questions a year? Like you, you, you yeah. don't do it enough to remember where to go when you have a question. So you just ask a person. And so you never get to the point if you're like, oh yeah, what's that bot that answers HR questions for me? So, so what you have to do is in order, you have to make a bot for that kind of use case that does a lot that somebody will interact with pretty regularly. Well, if you're going to do that, it breaks down the current financing model, right? The current financing model that VCs and entrepreneurs like is the MVP model. Hey, build a super simple really stripped down thing that just does one thing really, really well, and then work from that and build off that. But the problem here is if you only do one thing really, really well in this context, people forget about you. You actually need to raise a larger round of funding, do multiple things well out of the gate. Um, it's a different kind of profile company. And it's, it's one that not a lot of people are interested in building that style company right now, but somebody will do it. And some people are trying. And I think some of the recruiting bots might end up moving into that territory and so, anyway, so we got out of that and got into to, um, initially what we called customer facing and customer experience support of all kinds. So pre-sales support and, you know, um, some related sales workflows along with customer service and customer support. What we found there 
is that, you know, yeah, again, like I, I feel like I'm going to start B VC bashing now, but uh, one of the things VCs are wrong about sometimes is they'll always say, oh man, given the choice, you want to be closer to revenue. And so you want to do an app that's sales focused because that's what people pay up for. They, you know, some people will pay to save money, but not as many as will pay to generate more revenue. So you always want to be on the revenue side. What they miss is because every startup wants to be on the revenue side. Um, salespeople are just bombarded with messages, even more so than other roles. And so, uh, you know, you have a hard time breaking through to them to tell them about your new tool. Um, but the bigger problem that we found was an adoption problem, which was when we sold Tala into a sales team and the sales manager said, okay, we're all going to use Tala now. And you hit your number, but you didn't use Tala as a salesperson. They didn't really care. Like as long as you hit your number, you were still okay. Whereas if you were in a support organization and the, the head of the support organization said, we're all going to use Tala now, then you're going to use Tala. That's the way they're going to work. So we saw much, you know, the, the adoption pattern was, you know, you sell into a 50 person sales team and uh, six people use it regularly, 10 people use it a little bit, nobody else uses it. You sell into a 60 person support team, like 58 of them use it regularly, like they're supposed to. So, uh, so that's why we ended up, that's how we landed and sort of migrated into really focused on support teams um, was because they had the best use case of, you know, a problem that we could solve that dealt with unstructured text and, uh, you know, and they, they would actually adopt the product. Yeah, we talk to CIOs um, and also on, on our other show, CMOs, all the time about customer experience and like who owns it and like, you know, where sales stops and marketing begins or where marketing stops and IT begins and like who who owns this experience because it's a digital experience. So inherently, IT has to oversee it in some form or fashion. And then marketing has to have a play in this because there's so much conversation. And if you believe like, you know, marketing helps guide the conversations with customers and, uh, and you know, ultimately pre-sales as well, then they should have a vote. What I, and I think what you said is a really important insight. Um, but I think also I would push back to the VCs on, aren't we all kind of shifting towards the fact that renewals are much more important than uh, than anything, right? Like, isn't your customer right. experience the most important thing for your business? Aren't we seeing that that's, that is closer to revenue? The problem is that C-level executives haven't had that ammunition to be able to automate in a way that shows how much money they create. And I think that now we can do that in a much more efficient way. And there's, there's kind of no arguing it, right? Like when you, when you throw out the fact that you know, there's a 50% decrease in ticket handling time, like you talk about with Tala, that's pretty crystal clear, right? Like, it's right. pretty black and white that it's like, do you know how much man hours this uh, this saves our team, but also decreases the, the time that our customers wait for things? Like, it's pretty obvious. Um, have you found that when you're pitching teams that you're talking to tons of different types of buyers when you're working with customer experience? We are. And, you know, we're, we're still a little too small, I think, to focus on vertical integration, but we may end up going down that path at some point. You know, I think when you're, when you first get started, unless you have a clear reason to be vertically integrated, it, it, it makes sense to cast the net a little more widely. But one of the interesting things is that, that you sort of hit on is, you know, the value prop is a little bit different. And there's sort of multiple value props tied up here. When you think about AI automation for something like support, on the one hand, um, some people buy us primarily for the customer experience. They'll say, well, to have a user come in 
and ask a question, not find their answer, fill out a ticket, and then get an email that says, thank you, uh, we've, we've got your ticket, someone will be back to you within 24 or 48 hours, like that's a pretty bad user experience. Yeah, um, no kidding. And so if, you know, if we can say, look, you know, in, in, in our best cases, sort of 85, 90% of the time, Tala can give the very specific right answer right on time, right? Just, you know, the snippet that you need. It's not, it's not search results. It's not a list of possible answers. It's, it's just the one thing that you need. So, um, so that's a better user experience. Uh, and then on the other side, it, you know, you can deflect some tickets from coming into the reps. Uh, when the reps do have to answer a ticket, they can use Tala and answer them more quickly with Tala sort of has suggested answers and, uh, and stuff like that. And so it's, um, it, you know, it, it, it's multiple value props. And so we sell it different ways into different kind of customers, but, uh, but overall it, it actually provides a lot of different value to the organization. I want to take a step back to like the CIO, CTO, lead technologist for a second. You know, a lot of our listeners that are CIOs and CTOs and in the IT department are probably nodding their heads with the idea that like, we don't want to be ticket takers anymore. However, that is something that we are going to need to be doing. Um, I know that your product isn't like direct in an, an internal focus product for IT, for example, but like reading the tea leaves, like where do things like that, what does the future look like for the way that things like extremely monotonous ticket taking get expedited so that people in technology, in IT, can actually focus on being proactive and working on bigger problems? Yeah, so we, we, have, we have a couple of deployments that are internal. Um, it's not really our focus, um, mainly because, you know, the systems that you integrate with there sometimes are different. Um, and so we, yeah. we're less likely to integrate with, with those. But, um, you know, I, I think of it this way. Uh, there's a whole industry called RPA, Robotic Process Automation Industry. And it is a, it's an older industry but it really caught fire circa sort of 2014. And so, you know, you read these stories now about, you know, UiPath, for example, supposedly went from 1 million to 100 million ARR in one year. And that's after taking, you know, 12 years or whatever it was, you know, eight years to get some long period of time to get to a million ARR. Wait, say that again, sorry. So UiPath is one of these robotic process automation companies. And if you look at their history, they were founded in, I don't know, 2003 or 2005 or something like that. And in 2015, they were a million ARR. So, you know, 1 million annual run rate. And in one year, they grew to 100 million ARR from 1 million. Wow, I, I'll check them out. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, there's an article about it somewhere um, in one of their financings. And so that, that process, the, the RPA industry is interesting because it's mostly Fortune 500 it's mostly desktop systems and it's mostly back office processes. So an analyst comes in, they map your process, you know, you're moving data around, you're opening different systems, you're scanning in invoices and, you know, paying bills and stuff like that. Um, and they write a script and it might cost you, you know, 10 to you know, $50,000 a year for the script. And then you, you can run it, you know, repeatedly and it saves you monotonous work. But there's a lot of things that have a little too much variability for those systems to deal with, but that's what's coming. So right now what you have is companies like Tala and there's a whole bunch of other ones out there that are starting to do automation in different ways and they can deal with more variability, right? We can deal with natural language. Um, we can deal with unstructured data and unstructured text. 
And so what's going to happen is you're going to see these companies become the next generation of robotic process automation. And maybe they'll call it something different. I don't know. But the idea will be automate all kinds of processes, but it'll be different. It'll be more front office focused, right? Automating processes that have to do with customer interactions. It'll be more um, lightweight and cloud focused rather than, you know, desktopy and, and fortune 500. It'll be, you know, fortune 5,000 focused. Everybody yeah. will do it. And then it'll be learned instead of scripted. So you'll, you'll work through the process and the machine will watch you and then the machine will, uh, you know, will do it. So. Do you think that there've been some kind of like surprising things about AI recently that you didn't see coming? Yes and no. I mean, I, I've, you know, I, I've seen a lot coming. I, when, when GANs for video first came out, you know, maybe two years ago, I wrote about it in my newsletter and I linked to this video of a fake zebra running around. That was one of the things that people had done. And I said, Oh man, you know, what's coming is all kinds of like fake news on steroids. Um, yeah. And I got a bunch of comments back that basically said, uh, you're a moron. This technology is so bad. It's decades away, you know, whatever. And, and now here we are two years later and this is the, you know, this is what people are talking about is, is fake news and particularly deep fakes, the ability to create these AI powered videos. And, and I think as a, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a contrarian by nature. So a bunch of my investing has been in like AI hardware, um, which again, in 2015 and 2016, when I started doing some of this, people thought it was really dumb because, you know, oh, NVIDIA's got the AI hardware market locked up. Um, they just weren't thinking forward about where it might go. So, um, also, also angel investing in hardware companies is a bold move to begin with. Um, yeah, but, but, but I will say mo most of them are, um, they're, they're cheaper than, than ever to, to build, right? A lot of them are going to be pure IP companies and, you know, they, they're not going to build fabs. What's interesting about AI hardware that people miss is because the technology is very new and different, um, they're reviving a lot of analog circuitry ideas from the 70s and 80s to help with low power. But because a lot of AI doesn't require the level of precision that digital uh, logic processing requires. So you can go back to this AI hardware that, that's less, or this analog hardware that's less precise, but um, faster and low power. So, you know, resistive, you know, multipliers and stuff like that. And what that means is it means you can go back to older circuit, circuit fabrication technology. So you can take a fab fabrication facility that's not super popular and cutting edge right now and cheaper, and you can go give it business, right? And I assume you can get that on good terms. And so, um, so I think they're going to be, I actually think they're going to be, they're going to be good bets, but, uh, but there are some things that surprise me. So one of the, one of the things that surprises me is I think when people talk about AI ethics, they talk about a lot of the wrong things. You know, you always hear this example of like, Oh my God, what, what is a self-driving car going to do when it's forced to decide between killing a passenger and killing a, you know, bystander on the side of the road and, uh, or killing the driver. And it's like, well, you know, one of the things you have to think about where AI is going is like, you have to think about what people do, right? This is ultimately about trying to build machines that do things that people do. And how, how many times as a person do you make that decision? Like never, right? Totally. I'd be much more concerned about algorithms manipulating us in similarly nefarious, but maybe not as deadly types of ways. So one of the examples I give people is, look, if you've used Waze, the, you know, the program to sort of tell you how to get somewhere faster, let's say you and I both use Waze. And um, we both leave our houses at, you know, 8.30 uh, most days to be at work at 9 o'clock. And the algorithm learns that. And we're both using ways to get to work as fast as possible. But let's say one day you happen to leave at 8.25 and I happen to leave at 8.35. And Waze realizes that, you know, you need to be at work by 9 and you're running early. And what if Waze decides 
to optimize the overall traffic pattern rather than the individual traffic pattern. Yeah. You could posit lots of reasons it could do this. Should it send you away that's two minutes slower so that I can get to work on time? And now it maximizes the number of people who get to work on time. Or is that punishing you for being responsible and, and not punishing me for hitting snooze twice, right? Like, uh, or, and then how, how does it decide what's fair in that context? Are you, you know, is it fair because more people get to work on time and it's the greater good? Is it fair because I click on more ads than you do, so I'm just more valuable the ways? Like, you know, there's, there's all kinds of issues that AI is going to face that are like that, that are not as bad as, you know, who a self-driving car is going to kill that, you know, worry the hell out of me. And, and we don't talk about those very much. Yeah. I, I love that example. And I think about it every single day because, uh, when Waze tells me, uh, where I uh, should be going, uh, the route that I should be going to work. And I always think about, you know, when you see the five people in front of you that are getting off at the, you know, essentially the the frontage road. And you're like, man, I bet all those people are on ways as well. Cause like, why the hell else would you be <laughs> going down this random right. frontage road? But if everyone was on ways at this moment in time, wouldn't it tell everyone to go on the frontage road? So then at some point, aren't we getting to the place where, yeah, who, who is it rewarding? And based off of that, like you said, if their business model is advertising, then what are the people that it's going to give the benefits to? What are some other examples of things like that that you're worried about? Because I think that's fascinating. Um, well, so I wrote about this in, in uh, one of my newsletters. Um, another example is, you know, are, um, are people going to start, are there going to be services that will log on as you and browse the web as you to make the algorithms think you're something that you're not? So I talked about this in the context of, um, I, you know, I, I, I won't let on who the guy is, but one of the smartest people in the world who has written many books and um, has a PhD and all this other stuff. Uh, I found myself sitting across from him at a dinner a couple years ago talking about hiring. And um, we talked a lot about AI, but when, when we started talking about hiring, he said, um, you know, for years, for 25 years, I've run my company and um, my best students have come from Harvard, Stanford, and MIT. And I tracked the performance of everybody. And as of a couple years ago, I no longer hire from Harvard or Stanford. And I said, well, that's really interesting. Why is that? And he said, well, their performance has gone down. And I don't know why, but I think the reason is that the college admissions process has gotten so competitive that it doesn't, that it rewards people who are good at the admissions process, not people who are good. You, you used to use the admissions process, looked at your life as your life naturally was and use your, you know, grades and activities and everything else as a proxy for, you know, are you worthy to come to this school? Will you be successful? You know, are you a good member of the student body? And what happened is, you know, we, we, we hate subjective criteria because then it, we feel like it's biased and random and whatever. So you try to make it objective, but the moment you make a objective, people start gaming it. And now people who maybe hate sports, go off and play a sport so that it'll look that way on their, you know, college admissions application. And so as algorithms objectify more of our lives, uh, is this going to become a big problem where we start doing things to cater to the algorithms rather than doing them because that's who we are, that's what we want. And so then you can imagine services that say, well, uh, you know, Rob's a good or bad credit risk based on websites that I visit and how I spend my time. And so what I do now is I, I have somebody log in as me and read a bunch of, you know, financial uh, blogs and 
uh, you know, subscribe to newsletters about financial discipline and good investing. And now the algorithms suddenly think that like I'm very responsible and I deserve, you know, a higher credit score and, and more money. And so you can think about that dual sort of, you know, we try to game the algorithms, the algorithms kind of game us, they kind of influence us back. You know, I think, I think that's a, that's a really big issue as well. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to your point about school that the system is designed based off of the application process working its way backwards, right? Like many things in life, I think that we've realized with the rise of technology, like in the past 10 years, so many things were built to be easier um, because we didn't have technology, right? Like why are applications due in a certain time? Well, they have to have a bunch of human beings that go through all the applications at one time and it has to be uh, fair and and all of these things. Uh, why do we have SAT scores and all these uh, different types of ACT tests and all of that? Well, we have to be able to standardize. But now with the level of complexities of technology, all of those things, you know, you don't need to build from what makes this easier for an organization backwards. You can build from like the customer forwards or the or the consumer or your employee or whatever it is. Like you can build kind of reverse. And you see companies that are extremely successful building from that. I mean, like Google famous, famously being, you know, so simple or Apple or whichever it is, building for simplicity and then working their way backwards. Um, but I think the applications process is a, is a great point that you also have multi-generations at this point that have been trying to get into Harvard or Stanford, right? Or whatever it is. And, you know, Clayton Christensen said that, uh, you know, who's famously a, a Harvard professor was like, we've been disrupted by University of Phoenix. It's like, there's not a question of whether or not this has happened. We have been because they teach 400,000 people and we teach, you know, 40,000. Um, like, who's the better institution for learning? Like, we're a better institution for, you know, creating thought leadership potentially, but they teach more people than us. And uh, And if you aggregate like over time, what all of their graduates will do versus us, like, you do get into a numbers game sort of thing. And more as a thought process of like, how does technology enable education to spread? Well, if you only have a scope of influence like Stanford or Harvard or any of these schools do, how can you really evangelize to the point where you're reaching, you know, millions of people? It's pretty tough, but with technology, you can do that. But not if you kind of think kind of of the old models. Are there other things that you think AI specifically can democratize for, you know, consumers? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think a couple of things uh, on this issue, it might actually, it might actually make things worse before it makes things better. Yeah. Right. Because when you think about a lot of, um, when you think about a lot of algorithms, there's sort of a collapsing of the very, so, so let me give you an example. When I started Tala, um, I got 77 LinkedIn messages when I changed my, you know, <laughs> job title and 73 of them were the LinkedIn auto reply message, right? Hey, congrats on the new gig. Hey, congrats on the new gig. Hey, congrats on the new gig. Four people took the time to write their own custom messages. Now, how did LinkedIn arrive on that? Hey, congrats on the new gig. My assumption is they looked at lots of what people say when you have a title change and they said, ah, this covers most of it. Um, but the problem is, you know, data sets in one place, you know, outputs in one place might be inputs to data sets in another place. 
And so what you've had now is you've had a consolidation, right? You know, if those responses were a data set that was input to another machine learning model, what that machine learning model sees now is not 77 slightly different, you know, inputs. It sees 73 that were the same and four that were slightly different that seem like outliers. And so I worry that this is going to drive a narrowness to many ideas and many thinking and many, many types of thinking and many types of recommendations. You know, we, we, we always say that personalization is like a great thing and that AI can do that. And, you know, I, I don't know because the way it personalizes is by, uh, it doesn't find stuff. So, so the, the, there's a difference, right? The, the, the AI looks at movies that you like and movies that I like. And if we like a lot of the same movies, then it just recommends the other movies that you and I, that, you know, that you've seen that I have and vice versa. What it doesn't do is it doesn't find an esoteric movie that not very many people have seen and be able to know from the attributes of that movie and unique things about you that you might like it, right? So for example, you know, if you looked at my movie history, you know, you, you, you might never suggest the, you know, 1980s movie Hoosiers about basketball, but, you know, because I don't watch a lot of other stuff that's like that. I generally don't watch, you know, sports dramas or whatever you would call it. But if you knew that I grew up in Kentucky, which is right there by Indiana, and I do like basketball and stuff like that, then you might recommend that movie. But if you look at people who grew up in Kentucky and like basketball, I probably, you know, have pretty different profile from the rest of them. Like I've moved to Boston, I studied technology, you know, all these kinds of things. And so that's a lot of where the, the algorithms can break down. Yeah, just just quickly, I, w- I want to expand on that too. We call this uh, at Mission, like, and now for something completely different, right? Like that, that whole thing is like, you don't know, especially like with content and things like that. One of the things that you might want to get from a movie is not necessarily the content of the movie, but the experience around talking about it with your friends. So it's yeah. like, it's more valuable. Like that's why people do book clubs. That's why like people go see a movie, you know, in the theaters that's super popular, that's breaking box office records so that they can talk about it with other people. Sometimes the content is irrelevant uh, to the experience that's being had. Um, and I think that that's exactly what you're talking about with like algorithms don't allow for serendipity in your life um, because if you start auto filling something in and it gives you the answer, well, it's like, maybe you were going to say something different. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people hope that AI in a lot of ways, you know, democratizes and make things, makes things more equal, but that's just, you know, human beings, this is what's so weird. I'm not sure human beings want to be equal. I mean, we're really programmed to find ways to think that we're better than other people. And I think when, I, I think when people brain, you know, you look at this concept of the hedonic treadmill and we're always adapting when we rise in status or the, the, all, all the money that we spent, all the, you know, the, the grow, economic growth and the absolute standard of living that's been raised for everybody hasn't made us happier because the relative standard of living is really very different. And what we want is, you know, we actually don't care if we have computers or cell phones or whatever. We care that we have something that other people don't have. And I think that's sort of core to human nature and, and the way we evolve. And so I think, you know, I think, I think people can only be happy when they you know, you know, when they feel that way. And so I, so I think it's sometimes hard to, I think it's gonna be hard, a hard thing for AI to fix, but you know, uh, maybe I'm a little too misanthropic. We'll see. No, I think that the idea about the human condition wanting opportunity rather than equality, right? Like we would rather have an equal opportunity to do 
whatever it is that we want to do. Like we just want the freedom to choose our own path to make our own mistakes sort of thing, rather than like, I want the exact same thing as every single person around me. Um, I don't think anyone wants that. Like, why would you want all of the things that every single person around you has? Uh, it just doesn't, you know, obviously we, we carry certain trends and certain different sort of, you know, similarities in that, in that case. But I think that, you know, specifically with AI, I think at its very core, obviously it's like backwards looking, uh, although it says it's predictive, like, you know, if you train it on a bunch of things, is it going to be creating things that are brand new that have never been in the world? Like, that's the question that I have. And I mean, you could argue that human beings are trained in the same way that all of our experiences lead us to a certain point where we create something new. Um, But you look at certain ways that humans create, whether it's technologies or, you know, uh, stories or whichever, uh, physical objects, it'll be really interesting to see what AI can spit out when it comes to looking at different things. I mean, that's what I'm so curious about. Like, can it create something novel? Well, I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm seeing in the investing side of things is, um, I started to see just in the last six or seven months, I started to see some non-neural network uh, or combined neural network types of approaches. I mean, if you look at, you know, this neural network wave started in 2012, really took off about 2015 and really sort of hit peak in sort of 2017, uh, you know, deep learning for everything. And I think in 2018, a lot of people started to realize some of the limits of deep learning, um, you know, there's a big debate going on in AI about can it get us to the next level of like, you know, actual reasoning and understanding, um, are you going to need something better? And, um, <clears throat> you know, I've looked at a couple of companies that, that, that I may invest in. One, you know, is, is also uh, voice customer support centric. So not something mm-hmm. that we do at Tala, but, um, but they have taken what I would call this cognitive architecture approach, right? Which is, hey, neural networks are great, but they're limited. We have a bunch of cognitive components, one of which is a neural network, but there are others that do other things. They, you know, process symbols and, uh, you know, some are Bayesian and, and we, we put them all together into a system that can now do a lot more than a neural network can do. And, and, and there are, you know, there's some cognitive architectures, like there's one called SOAR, S-O-A-R, uh, that's very popular and, and open sourced. And so, so the ideas have been around for a long time, but they're starting to catch up now. And then I've seen a couple of approaches you know, there's a company that's, that, that's doing this. And then I've seen some papers out of IBM research uh, around merging symbolic logic processing with neural network approaches. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. either in, uh, you know, typically it's like trying to use a neural network to generate the symbols themselves and the, the, the symbolic logic, but, um, but there are some other mixed uh, mode approaches as well. So you get a ton of access to really smart people. You write the, uh, is it the weekend version of Inside AI? Is yeah, it the, I write the, I write the weekend version? commentary every Sunday. Weekend commentary. You've invested in over 50 startups at this point? Yeah, uh, 64. Yep. 64. Um, and you are obviously a startup CEO. You get access to a bunch of different smart people that are working on a bunch of different problems and get an opportunity to synthesize that also with with your the podcast AI at work that you all do at uh, Tala. I'm curious, where do you find your information? What are the things that you're looking for? Um, how do you stay at the cutting edge uh, as a leader to be able to 
look at trends personally, not not necessarily with an algorithm? Or are you using any uh, any machine learning to help uh, help you find the best stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. There's not a um... I, I actually don't rely on algorithms. I rely more on serendipity. So I, uh, algorithms tend to show you what's popular. Um, and, and so I don't like that. So I actually don't, don't, you know, I get some newsletters, uh, other than my own. Um, you know, I particularly think like Jack Clark's I think is, is really, really good. Um, and then I get some more technical ones, but I also, I still get a lot of paper magazines. I get the economist, the wall street journal, you know, popular mechanics, business week wired and, MIT tech review all in paper form. And the reason I do that is because I, I repeatedly find things in there that other people don't see because, you know, if somebody has to decide what goes in the paper on page seven, there's a tiny, you know, three paragraph article that I see and I read and, and, you know, sometimes they're dumb articles, but sometimes they're really interesting. And I'll say, Oh, did you see this in the wall street journal? And people say, no, I read it every day. How did I not see it? And it's like, well, they only read it online. And that article never became popular. So it never got referenced to them. Right. So I do a lot of that. Um, I dig through Medium a lot, just doing random keyword searches. Um, I have Google Alerts set up for a lot of terms. So I read a lot of stuff that comes through. But a lot of insight comes from talking to, you know, interesting people. You know, I'm, I'm not a sort of, I tend not to go to a lot of big events and conferences um, unless I have to speak um, or unless it's a topic that I just want to learn a lot about because a lot of the stuff that's regurgitated is a lot of the same stuff over and over and over. Um, and it gets a little monotonous. Um, I, you know, I'd much rather spend, you know, one-on-one coffee, lunch, dinner, whatever, uh, you, you know, with, with one smart person or, you know, small group of people who tell me about what they're working on and, and we can go deeper. That's what I like about the, the angel investing work is I, I get to have a lot of those conversations and I get to hear what's working and what's not, you know, from the people that are dealing with customers and you get different points of view because selling into the finance industry, you know, uh, selling an application to the finance industry is different than selling, you know, infrastructure into the tech industry, even if they're both AI companies. And so, so I, it's really interesting and that's where I learn a lot. I'm glad that you said that. It's something that we talk a lot with our CIOs, especially in the CIO roundtables, about like where they're listening, um, what are the nodes that they're kind of parts of and their peer networks to find new technologies. Like if you believe that the modern CIO or CTO or CDO, however your company is structured, is the kind of voice of technology for the company, is the person that's supposed to be out there finding new things that their company can explore. Um, you kind of need to be out and about all the time. And the thing that we talk about similar to the way that you were talking about angel investing is how companies can make investments in startup technology in a way that they are paying them you know, for their services. They give them a huge boost as a company. They help them refine their product because they're giving them feedback. And like what a way to have vested interest in the outcome of a startup that you really believe in or a group of people. Um, and I think it's much the same way of how you view angel investing where you're putting an amount of money in, but you're also, it's a two-way street where you're learning, they're learning, uh, and you're both, you know, have a vested interest in each other to be successful. And I think that that's when it's great. When you have the other side where it's people just pumping money into stuff that they know is going to be a sure thing you know, you're not exactly taking a bet. You're not exactly taking a chance. Um, is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, uh, yeah, I definitely think so. Um, there's a really, really interesting book called Capitalism Without Capital. And it's this idea that the, the world of, you know, more than ever, we are moving towards, um, you know, away from property, plant, and equipment, 
as assets and more into, you know, ideas and brands and trademarks and code and these intangible things. And, and, you know, I won't go into the whole book. It's a fascinating book, but it's really changed a lot of, around investment because everybody wants innovation and everybody wants, you know, to, to push it, you know, big companies, small companies, but what they really want is, you know, the, but then they have a couple of failures and they want to back away. And what they really want is they want predictable innovation. They want to innovate and know that it's going to be successful. Yep. And that's just like, I don't think anybody's figured that out yet. Like innovation is a, is a, is a numbers game, right? You have to, you have to try 10 things. I mean, I, so my last company uh, was invested in our series C round was led by Symantec and the guy at Symantec, um, this guy named Bill Johnson, very smart guy said, you know, it's really interesting, Rob. He said, I, we have to take this approach of, because we need things that have billion, a billion plus dollars of revenue a year, which is a lot. And he said, I don't know starting out what can get to a billion dollars. So how do I get a billion dollar product line? I need 10 hundred million dollar product lines. And, um, and one of those will probably grow into a billion dollar product line. Well, how do I get a hundred dollar, hundred million dollar product line? I don't know what's going to be worth a hundred million dollars, but if I have 10, $10 million product lines, one of them will probably grow into a hundred million dollar product line. And the good thing is starting from zero, I actually can make some guesses about what can make it to $10 million. So it's this farming idea of launching some things, watching them grow, and then pruning the ones that aren't going to make it to you know, meet your requirements and, and growing from there. And people don't want that, right? They want the predictability that we had in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s in terms of earnings and financial predictions and modeling and blah, blah, blah. And like, we just don't have that with this innovation world. Yeah. And I think you look at some of the best performing funds are the ones that provide support that is differentiated, right? Like, right. you know, giving, and I think you probably know this really well, sitting down and giving a founder a bunch of advice. It's like a lot of times they can go listen to some podcasts or whatever it is and go get a bunch of advice. It's It really has nothing to do with the and also they're getting advice 24-7 from every single person that will tell them something. You know, filtering that advice and doing what you think is right is is the really hard part. The other piece of that is the thing that makes their company go is revenue. And the thing that makes their product grow is customer feedback. So the best funds figure out a way to put you in front of buyers. They figure out a way to put you in front of people that can actually spend money up with you um, because that helps you grow. And I think that that's one of those things I think a lot of the funds who are just kind of like a capital injection sort of a scenario and kind of sit and wait or, you know, hey, I want a board seat so that I have a vote. The reason why they're not as successful um, is for that exact reason. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Venture capital as a class is not that successful, like in the big scheme of things, right, as an asset class. Uh, and there's a handful of funds that consistently outperform everybody else. Um, you know, I remember uh, my last company when, you know, when I went in to pitch Sequoia, you know, they ultimately didn't invest. But they knew more, you know, most people didn't even really understand what we did. Some people, some firms knew our main competitor. Uh, the guys at Sequoia knew four competitors in the space and they knew a lot about them. And it was really, really interesting to me. And I, I could see why they've been so successful because they had done a lot more work than everybody else. Um, they understood the market better. And so, yeah, sometimes I think, you know, venture capital is one of those things that can, it can incent you not to work hard, right? Because you can get used to the management fees you could get lucky on the carry. Um, and then your incentive is to make sure the management fees don't go away, not to take, you know, risks on breakthrough ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So we, and we had a check from an angel 
uh, from a Sequoia Angel from their program. There's one of those scenarios like how brilliant of a scout program is it from one of the best funds in the world that has people out there investing angel capital into, you know, into the stuff that's at the cutting edge, right? Like those are the people who are on the ground buying products or talking to people, you know, in a way that is not their day job. That is the stuff where you can really like find those pockets of innovation. And then when it gets to the point where, you know, Sequoia would invest at a certain level, then they have some really good intel on how this company, you know, was rolling from the very beginning, like stuff like that. And I know there's a lot of angel programs out there now, um, but it's the same thing with like the, you know, Andreessen Horowitz um, executive briefing program. And I interviewed Mark Cranny about it and it's the same sort of thing. Like, he's like, it's not exactly rocket science. Like we wanted to figure out a way to increase business development for our portfolio companies. Like, you know, we put a bunch of like, resources around it and it ended up being extremely successful. Right. Okay. So kind of final thoughts here on AI. We talked a lot about like the the use cases and uh, uh, and like what you're excited about, worried about, um, all of that. Is there anything that, you know, for the CIOs that are listening that are obviously dabbling in AI, they might be heavily invested in AI that you would think, you know, from your position, seeing kind of uh, across a lot of the information that is like the no-brainer bets that they need to be making, you know, in the next one to two years? You mean like from a technology perspective or? Yeah, from like an internal technology perspective for like their internal employees. So I I think, um, so I actually wrote a really good post on Medium about this and I I call it the the PAC framework, P-A-C, and it stands for Predict, Automate, and Classify. And um, which are three things AI can do. And I think it's a way to start. I think the most important thing is that you start making some bets because this is like, they might not work out at first and you might pick the wrong things. You might not have the data sets to do what you want to do. You know, you, you just might not understand the, the workflows that you thought you understood. And so I think my main piece of advice to people is like, just start doing something uh, AI related. Um, I would suggest automation because it's a good place to start. Um, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of what Tala does starting with your customer support is something that's pretty well understood. Um, there are some, uh, marketing and sales tools, some back office tools, um, around document management that are, that are very similar. And so I would look at some of those technologies. Uh, you know, everybody wants to start with a chat bot or a digital assistant. Most of them don't work very well. Yeah. And so I think you gotta be, you gotta be careful and they will someday, right? That's coming. And, and the enthusiasm is keeping, people working on it, but, uh, you know, but it's, it's going to be a while. We, we might have to bring you back just for that. Uh, just to talk through that article, um, the pack framework, how non-technical executives should think about artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah. we'll link it up in the show notes, but, uh, yeah, that's great stuff. Um, all right, let's get into some lightning round questions. These questions, you have no idea what's coming ahead of time. These are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce you can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn more about building mobile apps fast and easy on the Lightning platform. Are you ready, Rob? I am ready. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? That's the most fun. Uh, boy, I'm actually going to pass on that one. I don't, I don't really use my phone for much fun. Maps probably because it's, you know, it's getting me to a nice dinner or something. I don't know. That's why we asked the question. Not a lot of people having fun on their phones. Um, do you have a favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? 
Um, oh man, I've got, um, yeah, I've got, I've got a ton of favorite books. Um, I, I forget the exact name of it, but you know, AI versus China superpowers, China and USA for, for AI, I forget the specific name, but it was written by a venture capitalist uh, in China. And one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around in is, you know, is there a new cold war between the United States and China, particularly around technology and AI in particular, uh, or not? And I think, um, maybe it's called AI superpowers, I think is the name of the book. But it was, it was really good and insightful and it's definitely worth a read. I don't, you know, I don't know. It, it doesn't answer the question for me. I think there's a lot more to it, but, um, you know, it's worth, uh, it's worth continuing to, to look through. Favorite vacation spot? You know, I'm a Florida person. Like growing up in Kentucky, um, you know, that's where we go. The palm trees yeah, kind of make me happy. The ocean uh, <laughs> is what I like to do. What do you do for fun? Uh, I play a lot of basketball. Um, you know, even at my age, uh, I run a lot and I, I, I read a ton. I love to read. Do you have a favorite commercial, uh, chat bot that you've seen recently? Uh, hmm. no, not really. A chat bot is a small part of Tala's platform. Um, I, I find most of them annoying and try not to engage with them. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, what technology are you most excited about going forward? Probably, you know, there's really interesting technology called probabilistic programming. And it is a, there's a lot of people that believe it's going to really help AI systems deal with less data. And so I'm, you know, I'm pretty excited about that because I think small data AI could be a really, really big and important thing. What do you look for in a early stage company to invest in? I mainly am interested in um, a good market, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean a big market. Like I don't need to believe that the total available market size is huge now. I believe that it can grow pretty fast, um, even if it doesn't exist today, if you have an interesting application. Um, and then I really look at teams that have a lot of grit and sort of good backgrounds for these kinds of things, right? I don't, um, a lot of people will say, well, you know, what experience do you have and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, if, it's a, if it's a new enough idea, nobody really has any experience. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, but the thing that I do know is starting a company is really hard. And uh, you will undoubtedly, no matter how well it goes, you'll have a lot of really bad days. And so I'm always interested in people who are gritty enough to deal with the ups and downs and, um, you know, and get through that and, and still make things happen. And that's, you know, I'm very much a team-focused investor. Best advice for a first-time CEO? Um, get an executive coach. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you have to have to be successful in this job. Um, it is just a relentless job. And, um, you know, there's always, always so much stuff on your mind. Like I, you know, when I sold my company and I went into this much bigger company and I, in some ways I had a bigger role, I managed more people, I had a bigger budget and all that kind of stuff. But, but I, but not being the CEO, you know, being one of the top four or five executives, but not the CEO is so different. It is so much easier, so much less work, so much stress, even though I still worked a lot. It's just an order of magnitude, more stress when you're the CEO. And so, um, you know, get some help, get an executive coach, somebody who can teach you some of the things that you don't know. I, I had a really great one who would, you know, answer questions for me like, okay, um, I'll give you an example. Um, my VP of engineering is not going to scale at 10 engineers. You know, he needs to move to a new role. I'd like to keep him in the company. I'm going to make him CTO. I'm going to hire a new VP engineering. What happens when the new VP of engineering and the CTO disagree, given that all the team was hired by the guy who's now the CTO? How do I make sure that the VP of engineering isn't undermined and gets what you know, he or she wants? And so that is the kind of situation that a, um, 
you know, a really good executive coach can say, great, here's how you set that up to make sure everybody understands what you're doing, what the reporting structure is. Um, and that, you know, they better follow your wishes or they're going to have problems. So, um, that, that would be my suggestion. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Hmm. That's a good question too. You know, people don't ask what ideas or frameworks they're missing. And, and it's really funny because I think people, I think most people assume they've got the world pretty much figured out and they just need a fact or two here or there and things can fall into place. Um, And I've always been a little bit the opposite. I'm always obsessed. There's some like major idea that I don't know about. It's a way of thinking about the world. Right. And so I'm always trying to add those to my, you know, my own sort of mental frameworks. And, um, and it's interesting because I have a lot of these situations. I, you know, I look at my, my best investment by markup right now is a, a hardware chip called Mythic. And Mythic is a company that I, after I invested, introduced to so many venture capitalists who, you know, didn't get it, didn't want to invest, uh, thought hardware was stupid, thought AI was stupid, you know, and they were obviously very wrong. And so it's weird because I have this constant thing where people, people will come to me and look at the deals that I'm in and they'll say, man, you're in like every great AI deal. How do you get in these deals? Can you share your deal flow? But at the time I go into it, it doesn't look like a good deal. And so yeah. I, you know, so, so people want to see my deal flow and then they see it and then it's like, oh, I don't get it. I wouldn't invest in that. And it's like, well, you know, we, we have different frameworks. We, we have different ideas about where the world's going and how to think about how these things roll out. So, um, yeah, you could, do, you could do a whole podcast on mental frameworks that investors use and how they think about the world, I think. Yeah, it was one of the things that talking, I talked to Mike Maples a long time ago. Um, and he was talking about some of the investments that he made early on, specifically, you know, Twitch and Twitter and both of those, everyone was just like, you're doing, you're investing in a guy who's walking around with a backpack, like recording himself. Like, what are you doing? And, uh, it's like stuff like that where, you know, how could you possibly imagine that millions and millions of people would be like, you know, streaming video games and things like that. But I just think it's like so many things are very ageist in venture capital. Like, of course, you would never need Tinder, for example, right? Like, why would you why would you know what it's like to be, you know, an 18 year old with a device on your phone that can reach thousands and thousands and single people that are right around you? It's like it already happened once. Like it was called one and only dot com back in the 90s. Like you were there for that. How do you not see the trend or whatever it is? Um, And I think that there's a lot of that that happens that they don't really have a mental model for how they look at things um, because they kind of follow the leader. Right. Yeah. Very true. Okay. So uh, anything, anything to plug, obviously all of our listeners check out Tala. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, check out the newsletter inside.com slash AI. Uh, if you want to, you know, follow along week to week. Yeah. Highly recommend um, Rob. You're awesome. We got to have you back uh, talk about frameworks and your framework there, your, uh, your pack framework. Cause that's, that's awesome stuff. Thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.